uh, had a wonderful July 4th celebration. Uh, we did a retreat here, a day-long, half-day actually, on the land at Spirit Rock. Uh, outside here on the meadow, we sat out there and we called it Interdependence Day, <laughs> celebrating our, our great freedom, uh, freedom from the tyrants of our mind, the colonial thoughts and uh, the oppressive colonial thoughts. Anyway, uh, we took the pro- this Pledge of Allegiance, which is actually from a Gary Snyder poem. Ah, to be alive on a mid-September morn, fording a stream barefoot, pants rolled up, holding boots, pack on, sunshine, ice in the shallows, northern Rockies, rustle and shimmer of icy creek waters, stones turn underfoot, small and hard as toes, cold nose dripping, singing inside, creek music, heart music, smell of sun on gravel, I pledge allegiance. I pledge allegiance to the soil of Turtle Island. And to the beings who thereon dwell, one ecosystem, in diversity, under the sun, with joyful interpenetration for all. Very sweet. Of course, the United States of America is a concept that we hold in our minds and in our hearts. But if you'll recall it's only about 250 years old and before that it was something else and there were other people living here and they called it Turtle Island and we have no idea what it will look like 250 years from now or what it will be called or who will be living here it's a poem by Wislawa Zimborska, called Psalm. Oh, the leaky boundaries of man-made states. How many clouds float past them with impunity? How much desert sand shifts from one land to another? How many mountain pebbles tumble onto foreign soil in provocative hops? Need I mention every single bird that flies in the face of frontiers? or alights on the roadblock at the border, a humble robin sitting with its tail abroad and its beak at home. Among the insects, I'll single out only the ant sitting between the border guard's left and right boots and ignoring the questions, where are you from and where are you going? Just look at the chaos prevailing on every continent. Isn't that a blue jay on the far bank of the river smuggling its hundredth leaf across? And who but the octopus with impudent long arms would disrupt the sacred bounds of territorial waters? And how can we talk of order overall when the very placement of the stars leaves us doubting just which one shines for whom? Not to speak of the fog's constant drifting and dust blowing all over the desert as if it hadn't been partitioned. Only what is human can be truly foreign. The rest is mixed vegetation, subversive moles, and wind. But we have to celebrate 
our nation on some on some level it's 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 a it's a noble experiment a noble experiment this idea of everyone free to pursue liberty life liberty actually you know the constitution at one at one point said life the pursuit of life liberty property and happiness but uh, I think Thomas Jefferson took that out. It sounded a little crass. And uh, so now it's just the pursuit of happiness. But every time I hear that, I have this image of happiness running away. You know, it's, <laughs> it's that we have to pursue it and that somehow we're going to be able to catch it and bring it home with us somehow. But if we look at history, we have to acknowledge that those of us living here uh, on this continent in the, in the rule of this particular government over the last few hundred years, we've really been living, and especially in the last 50 to 100 years, we've really been living in a golden age, enjoying an unprecedented amount of freedom and abundance. You have been enjoying it, haven't you? <laughs> I sure hope so. Uh, it's, it's interesting, uh, you know, as, as the Dharma comes to the West, it seems as though our civilization <coughs> itself is sort of living proof of the nature of suffering and the first noble truth, and that no matter how much you have and how many choices you have, uh, the nature of this incarnation is that there is suffering inherent in it because everything changes, nothing stays the same. As regards uh, our affluence, this was a little piece that I wrote for the radio about 1973 or 4 uh, when we had an energy crisis. Do you remember that? The more things change, huh? This was a little ad we put on the radio. Are you worried about the energy crisis? Disgusted with high utility bills? Fed up with being an energy victim? Then take control of your life today and make your home energy self-sufficient with U.S. Adams Home Nuclear Reactor. (laughs) Small enough to fit into your abandoned fallout shelter, yet powerful enough to power your major home appliances including your washer, dryer, stove, refrigerator, freezer, microwave, waffle iron, toaster, coffee maker, mixer, blender, food processor, crock pot, electric wok, electric knife, knife sharpener, can opener, popcorn popper, cheese grater, meat slicer, dishwasher, garbage disposal, trash compactor, electric broom, vacuum cleaner, water heater, hot tub, sauna, water pick, electric toothbrush, alarm clock, AM, FM radio, tape deck, turntable, amplifier, color television, VCR, electric lights, and your automatic garage door opener. Not to mention Dad's electric typewriter, skill saw, table saw, chainsaw, edge and hedge trimmer, Mom's sewing machine, steam iron, curling iron, hair dryer, vibrator, your son's electric guitar, amp, preamp, ecoplex, wah-wah pedal. Your home nuclear reactor comes fully equipped with a lightweight plastic containment vessel and easy-to-follow emergency instructions in case of a mini meltdown. If you order today, you'll receive free directions on how to assemble a home-sized atom bomb out of your leftover nuclear wastes. 
enabling you to become a dominant military power in your very own neighborhood. <laughs> and that was before computers. Yes, so much. We have had so much, so much to desire that what a lot of us ended up desiring was the end of desire itself. So many choices. Our current economic troubles, I think, are, are necessary. And uh, even though there's a lot of pain out there, I know, and uh, a lot of suffering, loss of security, wealth. But it had to happen. The consumer industrial growth economy that had to increase many percents, percentage points every year was on a collision course with the environment, with the uh, ecology and it was simply our our level of uh, consumption is simply not sustainable and it seemed like it had to stop in some form uh, back in the 70s uh, you might remember there was a movement called voluntary simplicity well not enough people volunteered <laughs> So now we have to have compulsory simplicity. You could think of our current economic downturn as compulsory simplicity. Joanna Macy says this, There's no technological fix, no magic bullet that can save us from the population explosion, deforestation, climate disruption, pollution, species extinctions. We are going to have to want different things, seek different pleasures, pursue different goals than those that have been driving us in our global economy. We're going to have to want different things. That's where the Dharma comes in and the grace and the mercy of these practices of understanding ourselves and learning how to train our mind to relax and be more at ease with just being, with the simple glories of, of aliveness and the beauty of nature. And the, this consumption is, is a kind of madness that we've all been part of. I mean, I imagine some future people looking back at us and saying they all they all had their private little box of steel and plastic and they drove it around very fast 60 70 miles an hour everybody had their own little box so they could go exactly where they wanted to go listening to exactly their media and and uh, then they'd get out of their little boxes and they'd stay in their little <laughs> private communication world and It'll look like an aberration, I'm sure. This is not necessarily normal, the way we're living, you know. It's just, 
<laughs> we just take it all for, for granted, you know, and we just kind of go along with it. All right, you, you buy a car and you drive your car and you buy your computers and your iPods and your iPhones and your, I mean, all that I, I, you know, what, what is that about? <laughs> your MySpace and I and me. It's a, Dharma offers a different kind of pleasure that I think for most people, for myself, I know, I never, I never had anything to compare my mind to or my level of sort of contentment, well-being, happiness, whatever you want to call it, until I started meditating and realized that there was a whole kind of other state of feeling good that didn't come from satisfying the latest desire or the or accumulating or, or buying something new or, you know, some achievement, but just came from a kind of still ease of mind and being present with aliveness and breath. And it was, and, and for most people, I think they have nothing, they don't have that as an option. And when you find it as an option, it, it offers you another kind of pleasure. The Buddha called it the highest happiness, peace of mind. And I think meditation also puts us in touch with the mystery of existence. I know that uh, for years I paid attention to my breath as an object of meditation. And after a while, it became the carrier of the mystery itself. That breath became more than just something to focus my mind on. It became its own joy, its own delight to feel this constant pulse happening within me and independent of me, understanding that my breath was breathing me, that I wasn't breathing. That it, you know, if if you try to stop your breath, you know, you'll faint and your breath will continue. It demands that you keep breathing. But there was a, there was a, a quality of, of uh, delight that started to happen in my meditation practice after a few years, where there was wonderment at the breath and at the awareness, this mysterious quality of knowing. What is it that knows? Where is it? What does it look like? Does it have any characteristics of itself? The scientists can't find it. They don't know where it is. You can't, they can't find it in the brain. Uh, I don't know. Maybe they should look in the elbow. I don't know. You know what is this? <laughs> Swami Muktananda was once asked by me. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, on the radio, uh, if he did miracles, and he he said, no, I don't do miracles. I just tell people to be aware of the blood being pumped through their veins. That's enough of a miracle for anyone. It's actually a funny story that goes with that. He, At one point in our interview, it was live on the radio, uh, he put one of those little caps on me. And then he gave me a little pat, a little slap on the top of my head. And I just went out for like a minute, really just uh, 
I was in some other realm. Anyway, my program director came running in saying, there's dead air. What's going on in? There's nobody talking. There's nothing happening. (laughs) But we're going to have to want different things and find different pleasures. And uh, Dharma practice is certainly one. But also, I think the practice of meditation brings us into uh, a new kind of presence that allows us to be delighted in in a, in a space of wonderment about the planet and all of its uh, glories and uh, and the cosmos and all of its stories. I mean, we're really lucky to not only be living in a time when we're getting the wisdom of Asia, but we're also getting the fruits of our own Western scientific tradition that is telling us amazing stories about ourselves and the world we live in, this universe that we live in. I have this theory that uh, that the earth is kind of like, uh, shaped like the two hemispheres of the brain. Uh, it's shaped like the brain, and, and we in the West got the left hemisphere, and in order to discover truth and understand ourselves, we look outward and take things apart and analyze and figure out how things work in nature. And in Asia, they uh, came to understand that uh, a different kind of of knowing, uh, intuitive, receptive kind of knowledge, a holistic understanding of things. And now we have the corpus callosum of world travel in the global village, and we're really getting both. And it's a it's a it's a great time to. Uh, to be delighted by stories and by information rather than necessarily uh, our material wealth. I wrote this for uh, an article I'm working on. thought you might enjoy it. It's time for you to change professions. You've been a psychologist of yourself for way too long. If you were any good, there would be more people calling for appointments. (laughs) So leave the psychology behind. Become an anthropologist. Dig through the status symbols of your civilization. Uncover the fashion trends that dress you. Unearth the unique ways your society approaches sex, food, and tribal configurations. Know that these are all temporary appearances. You could also become a biologist of yourself and study how you came to have a spine, a desire for sugar, an innate ability to use language. Notice that no species remains a permanent fixture on the landscape of Earth. You might also become a cosmologist and investigate wormholes into other universes or count the galaxy clusters and try to figure out your relative significance in the cosmos. Maybe all that will help take care of any psychological issues that remain. (laughs) This is how D.H. Lawrence put it. Our task in the coming era is to relocate ourselves in the cosmos, renew our kinship with all of Earth life. It is time to join again in the dance drama of biological and cosmic evolution. In short to regain some humility and find our life's meaning not in individual accomplishment or accumulations, 
but in our shared existence. Rumi said, awe, the feeling of awe is the balm that will heal our eyes. Einstein, one cannot help but be in awe when one contemplates the mysteries of eternity, of life, or the marvelous structure of reality. It is enough if one tries merely to comprehend a little of this mystery every day. Never lose a holy curiosity. The other day I was looking at my pictures. I have a, My screensaver is... A, the astronomical picture of the day. And a little while back, they sent out the 10 uh, favorite, astronomers' 10 favorite Hubble photos. And one was of the Sombrero Galaxy. It's shaped like a Mexican hat. And uh, it said, first of all, it said it's 28 million light years away. But they got a picture of it. You know, I, I don't... <laughs> Right away, you you know, you're kind of wondering. And then they counted 800 billion suns in this one galaxy. 800 billion suns. And so those those numbers that just kind of flow over you, and then, wait a minute, suns. It's just a... 150, 200 years ago, we thought the whole thing was all about us. <laughs> what is that doing up there? Just to kind of delight us and, you know, once we discover it, kind of tickle our fancy? What is going on? <laughs> I try to stay in touch with those, that, that kind of information. I mean... You're going through your life, you know, you're doing something ordinary. You're washing your hands, you're washing the dishes, you're driving around, and there are huge galaxies exploding and suns and, I mean, cosmic events that you can... They're going on while you're doing your little chore, thinking, you know, that this is your world, and yet... You know that uh, scientists have traced our origin of our universe back to to uh, the Big Bang, thirteen point seven billion years ago. Today, <laughs> so so a happy birthday to you too. But the. The understanding is that the energy created by that explosion is still the energy being used. I mean, we are that energy unfolding, expressing itself. So we're kind of big banging along. (laughs) So right now, say, inside your brain, there's these millions of synapses firing. That's the energy of the big bang trying to comprehend the Big Bang. <laughs> I, I think that, you know, this, this universe, we are pieces of this universe uh, wondering about itself. 
that is maybe that's our our whole our whole job here is to be wondering about ourselves no other species seems to wonder about itself i mean maybe there are other planets with other beings wondering about themselves but as far as we know we're the only ones so we should do it we should you know this is our real work Now, of course, the physicists are now saying there may be other universes. You know, they're studying these wormholes, and there's, they think that, you know, there could be infinite universes. Uh, the Dalai Lama was once asked if they had uh, the Big Bang in Tibetan Buddhist cosmology. And he said, uh, mm, oh, yes. But bang, 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 many bangs. <laughs> Many universes. By the way, today is the Dalai Lama's birthday. So let's send him, let's send him a great uh, love vibe. Happy birthday to, to you, the Dalai Lama, the 14th Dalai Lama. But of course, if you've seen one Dalai Lama, you've seen them all. You know, you know that, don't you? <laughs> Don't tell any of your Tibetan Buddhist friends I said that, all right? <laughs> of course, the, the Hindus, you know, the Hindus also have this idea of universe after universe. Uh, they say that their creator deity, Brahma, every time he blinks his eyes shut, a, a universe is destroyed, and every time he opens his eyes again, another universe appears. You can try it for yourself. It actually works. <laughs> Jokes. I mean, what uh, what else is there? We 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 want to wonder about the universe. That's our job. But we also uh, want to entertain each other. You know, we are an entertaining species. You can become a physicist of yourself. And uh, I remember when I was studying with S. N. Goenka, and we were doing the practice of body scans, and I, I was with him. At one point, one year, for about a month and a half, doing it eight hours a day, scanning the mind through the body. And pretty soon, it, there was no solidity there at all. It's sort of like I didn't, I, it was all tingling. It was all kind of effervescent. I really began to experience my body as a, as a process, not a thing. It was a, it was, it was a, a flow going on here, a little flame. And uh, I thought, I, I tried to imagine what I was feeling. I don't think it was on the atomic level. I think it was maybe on the cellular level. But uh, it, really, it really shifted my sense of my own body. Uh, physics has been so interesting in confirming much of what the Buddha taught in terms of, of uh, anicca, change, happening uh, all the time, on a subatomic level, happening at a phenomenal rate. I mean, we think everything is changing. You can't hold on to a moment of your experience. You know that, right? Gone. There it was. It was gone. Now, where there's this one. Now that's gone. 
It's, it's impossible. It's so obvious. And yet we are so uh, determined to hold on to things and make things seem solid. So I was reading in the, in a, about subatomic physics, and they've got a whole new level of change going on. Inside the subatomic world, we, we find evidence of an impermanence so impermanent, it makes our ordinary reality seem frozen. Way down inside of everything, where the quarks are doing a line dance inside of an electron, events are occurring in increments shorter than the blink of an eye, which is considered to be one-tenth of a second. In the subatomic world, time is sometimes measured in what scientists have named attoseconds. A millionth of a trillionth of a second. It takes an electron about an attosecond to travel all the way around a proton. Meanwhile, inside the proton, perhaps one level deeper into reality, an attosecond would be regarded as a long nap. (laughs) Down here, time is measured in zeptoseconds. A billionth of a trillionth of a second. Before you can even blink, zepto, it's gone. At some point, the physicists must have realized that they had entered a Marx Brothers routine (laughs) where the jokes are coming so fast, you begin to see that it's all a joke. So when they started to measure things changing even faster, in trillionths of a trillionth of a second, they named it a yoctosecond. Atto, zepto, and yocto. Hello, I must be going. (laughs) The time it takes for a quark to go around a proton is somewhere between a zepto and a yoctosecond. We think things are so solid and real. Sokni Rinpoche always says that. You, You Westerners, you have a real problem. You think everything is so real. But what does physics tell us? That everything we perceive is made of atoms. And atoms are 99.999% empty space. You take the nucleus of an atom, blow it up millions of times till it's the size of a, of a pea. And the electron going around that nucleus will be the size of a dust moat. And it'll be a half a mile away. There's hardly any matter in matter. So why aren't we just, why don't we, don't we fall through the earth? Or, you know, I mean, it's all a magic act. There's no, uh, if your body's made of atoms, and atoms are mostly empty space, what is holding your clothes on? (laughs) Not only does the emperor have no clothes, the clothes hardly have any emperor. The Heart Sutra says, form is emptiness, emptiness is form. I read read that if all of the humans on the planet, if all the matter of all the humans on the planet was condensed, it would be the size of an apple. All of, all of our matter was condensed. There's, we're, we're hardly here at all. <laughs> it's so wonderful, you know, to, to contemplate the, the strangeness of this reality we live in. 
and and what this you know uh, how we create you know uh, illusions about it. I guess it's probably for the good of our survival for, on some level. Of course, scientists have really come to the conclusion that that there's really nothing here at all, that matter is uh, just a form of light. One scientist says uh, matter is gravitationally trapped light. E equals mc squared, right? Matter, you open it up and there's energy there. It's just, it's... Everything is in process. There is no thingness. I sometimes wish we had like electron microscope glasses and we could see just, we would just see flows and patterns of energy. You know that uh, the physicists have, have discovered that our consciousness is, is a necessary part of creating reality. Uh, and that, uh, as the Copenhagen interpretation of quantum physics says, there is no reality in the absence of observation. When we're looking, there are particles. When we're not looking, there are just probability waves. I've uh, conducted an experiment in many of my classes where I have everyone look over to the one side of the room. We could all look over there. You want to all look over there? Everybody look over there. Okay, that Okay, that should mean this you have to turn around and look you have to look behind you, yeah. Or else it doesn't work. Okay, now the other that means that the other side of the room has disappeared because nobody's looking at it. Okay, now we can look back. It may have maybe it reassembled itself or or somebody was somebody was peeking. <laughs> a mystery. Jack Kerouac said, happiness consists in seeing everything as a great strange dream. You ever feel the fact or sense the fact that you are spinning around on this little rock in space. You're spinning around uh, at about a thousand miles an hour eastward. And that we are traveling all together on this rock around the sun at about 66,000 miles an hour. And everything in our solar system is moving through the galaxy toward a a spot in interstellar space called the Great Attractor at about a half a million miles an hour. And everything attracted to the Great Attractor is moving at another million miles an hour or so toward another place in intergalactic space called the Shapely Attractor. <laughs> we are hurling through space on this little rock. Part of the wonder is that you don't have to hold on, that you're being held by this mysterious force of gravity. Nobody knows what that is either, by the way. 
they're hoping to find it in that Hadron Collider, that new uh, collider they opened up in Switzerland. They were afraid they were going to create a black hole and it was going to start eating all the cheese in Switzerland and just <laughs> suck up the world. Okay, let's get serious. <laughs> Contemplating, you know, these ideas can delight the mind and also break it out of its habit of being locked in the psychological story, being lost in our own drama and not seeing or not, uh, not experiencing the delights of being present for nature, being present for just this quality of life that I was pointing to uh, during the meditation. We just take it so much for granted. I think that meditation practice can be the antidote to that, taking life for granted, taking ourselves and, and the mystery of it for granted. But every time we sit, we come back to that mystery. I mean... Meditation practice has never given me any solid answers about anything, but it's brought me closer to that that wonderment. I mean, really, none of us knows what's who, what's going on here. I'm I'm fascinated by uh, the biology of our uh, existence. This is the 200th anniversary of uh, Charles Darwin's birth. I'd like to read to you from the last paragraph of his book, On the Origin of Species. There's a simple grandeur in this view of life, a simple grandeur in this view of life with its powers of growth, assimilation and reproduction, being originally breathed into matter under one or a few forms. And while this, our planet, has gone circling on according to fixed laws and land and water and a cycle of changes have gone on replacing each other from so simple an origin through the process of gradual selection of infinitesimal changes, endless forms, most beautiful and wonderful, have been evolved. Endless forms, most beautiful and wonderful, have been evolved. That's you. That's us. The wife of the Earl of Worcester, when, when she first heard, it's reported, she first heard about uh, Darwin's theory. It was a theory at the time. She said, oh, my dear, I, I certainly hope, this descended from apes, I certainly hope that's not true. And if it is true, let's hope it doesn't, get widely known. (laughs) I think we're still dealing with the shock of it. I don't think we've assimilated it yet. It is one of the most powerful teachings of of Dharma that I I think has ever come along, that evolution, uh, that we uh, inherit these past lives, the karma of these past lives, as fish, as reptiles, as animals. We're still animals. We inherit the instincts, the drive, the survival instinct, the emotions. We inherit a particular brain 
a nervous system that has grown up and developed over millions of years of beings dancing with the environment, trying to find a way to survive, continually changing their camouflage and their means of movement and their sensing organs. And and it has come to us. And we are beginning to understand this process, this mysterious, magical process of life continually changing shape. Now, of course, we think we're the end product, right? <laughs> that, again, it's all, all been about us. But as you probably have heard, 99% of all the species that have ever lived are extinct, that life keeps changing. And maybe we are a missing link as well, you know, and that there will be some other uh, mutation form arising out of our uh, out of our struggles and triumphs. But we're, we're shaped by nature. We're in this, this marvelous dance with nature. You know, for about two and a half uh, billion years on the planet, there were creatures, but there weren't any legs because there was no land and legs were not necessary. I just read a wonderful book called Your Inner Fish, which talks about the, how we contain the skeleton uh, of fish. And the, the bones in our ears are, were once the jaws of, of marine creatures. Uh, and, you know, uh, once we came out of the sea, we, we needed to hear as a means of, of sensing. And, and those jaws became part of the ear structure which in itself is just a miraculous Rube Goldberg device. You, you can't imagine. I mean, I don't know if you know, know about it. Let me just briefly tell you. First of all, there's no sound in nature. There's no sound out here. Right now, I'm flapping my lips and my tongue and creating waves in the air that is hitting the drum of your ear, which then uh, wiggles these three little bones makes them vibrate, and that stimulates a little pool of liquid that then excites some hairs on the other end of the pool of liquid that then excites the nerve endings that send electrical signals to the auditory center of the brain, which creates sound. You create all the sound all in, inside there. It's, just, it's, a, it's a phenomenal device allowing us to notice events that happen, you know, uh, uh, a distance away from us, you know, the vibration of the air. So actually, the next time you hear a symphony or, uh, you know, music or radio, realize that you are creating that inside of you. You don't have to take piano lessons. You don't, it's, it's a magical process. And it has developed over this process of, of evolution, over millions and millions of years of infinitesimal changes. The Buddha said at one point, this body is not mine or anyone else's. It has arisen due to causes and conditions. Do you think you own this body, that you created it? 
Well, of course you know you didn't create it. But do you own it? Can you make it do whatever you want it? Can you stop it from aging? It's like, do you own your your emotions? If you owned your emotions, wouldn't you be happy all the time? (laughs) The story of evolution really teaches us a lot about who we are, teaches us a message of anatta, no self, that we emerge out of this process of all these different elements coming together in a particular way to create a particular form and a way of sensing and a way of being. Impermanence, anatta, dukkha, certainly evolution teaches us about suffering. All of us continually struggling to stay alive, find food, find shelter, find satisfaction, built into the organism. That's why Dharma is so hard, by the way. In some way, we are going, we are, we are trying to somehow take this evolutionary package into our own hands and retrain it for a different kind of uh, satisfaction. <coughs> Truly. I, I, I interviewed uh, Francisco Varela, who's a great scientist, great biologist, and also a Tibetan Buddhist for much of his life, and He said, the brain is not made to understand or accept the Dharma. It resists it. It, The brain wants to time travel. The brain wants to be in the past and in the future all the time. Because that's good for survival. If you meditate and try to be in the present moment all the time, it's at your own risk. I am not taking responsibility. (laughs) We should have a waiver signed, you know. Because you're not planning, you know, you're not planning your next move and you're, yeah, you'd be in trouble. One of my favorite uh, stories of evolution is, is uh, the, the fact that we have these three brains that, uh, and they develop in us in the same order they developed in nature. We get a rep reptilian brain, the brain stem, we get a mammalian brain that grows kind of over that, uh, limbic system really, and then we get a new human brain, the neocortex. And it's been found that one brain doesn't override the other brains, that they're all completely uh, interconnected. And there's some speculation among certain scientists that we use our new human brain mostly to make excuses for the behavior generated by the other two brains. <laughs> that, that basically we're not rational animals, we're rationalizing animals. But what, what I really love to, t- love to read about and study about is uh, this whole DNA thing. They're unraveling this code, this, this molecule that contains all this information. Thousands of volumes worth of information inside of each of us. All the lessons life has ever learned, really. Contained on these little molecules 
composed of four chemical compounds, and depending on how they're arranged in these long strings of information, coded information, the molecule will contribute to the growth of a redwood or a rose or a ant or a human being. It's like a, a molecule that separates life from non-life. Every living thing has DNA, has this, this information in it. And we share 99.999% of our DNA is similar or, or the same as the person, as everybody else. Most of the information for building and creating you is information for building and creating a basic human. All the other, all the little differences of appearance and IQ and personality and uh, it's just a little thin coat of paint over this basic shared design. We share near 90% of our DNA with mice. Most of the information for building and creating you is information for building and creating a basic mammal. I mean, can you imagine what it takes to instruct eyes to grow and ears and a nervous system and a pulmonary system and digestion and, and sex organs and procreation? I mean, that is a complicated thing. We share nearly 70% of our DNA with worms, uh, something like 36 or 40% with yeast. <laughs> I mean, why shouldn't we be proud to share that much with yeast? Uh, there's, a, there's a T-shirt uh, made by the, the people down at Santa Cruz Biology Department. It says, uh, you share 25% of your DNA with bananas. Get over yourself. <laughs> but this is a magical, this is a magical uh, molecule and, and substance. And now the scientists are unraveling it. It's sort of like, like looking into this phenomena of life. I mean, it's still as mysterious as ever, but beginning to unravel our past, seeing how we're built, it's such an exciting time. And, uh, you know, I, I really, uh, I, I, try to, I try to be delighted, you know, as, as Einstein said, never lose a holy curiosity both in, in experiential practice of, of feeling this life as a mystery, as it's happening inside of me with the breath and the vibration. But also to really look outside of me and, and try to understand my world, my universe, to look at the plant kingdom. I mean... What a sumptuous place we live in. The plant kingdom is really the genius kingdom of life. Because plants, as you'll notice, they don't move around. They don't have to move around. They eat the sun. They eat the sun and create sugars and starches. They learn how to they, they learned how to turn the sun's energy into living energy. Now us animals, we have to eat plants. Or we have to eat other animals that eat plants. 
We can't, we, we can't do that. That was really brilliant. <laughs> and, and you should thank them. You should walk around and say, thank you. And thanks for the oxygen, too, by the way, while we're at it. <laughs> and would you like some CO2? I have some handy. <laughs> it's all, you know, it's, it's all so much bigger than our little drama. And we get so lost. We get so lost. E.O. Wilson, the great biologist, said, the chances of producing a human being through random chance in the universe would be like a hurricane blowing through a junkyard and creating a 747. (laughs) That there's something mysterious going on. You know, nobody knows what it is. And then there's consciousness. The Tibetan Buddhists have wonderful names for consciousness. The unborn, the predicateless primordial essence, the weaver of the web of appearances, and this one, the outbreather and inbreather of infinite universes throughout the endless duration of time. So anyway, I invite you to arouse wonder, meditate, find other ways of producing satisfaction and delight in your life. Let go of that material world to a certain extent. You know, keep eating, (laughs) keep feeding your children. You know what I mean. I think we're all going to be all right. I'll put it in the words of uh, the great American poet Walt Whitman. I am grateful for what I am. It is surprising how contented one can be with nothing definite. Only a sense of existence. Oh, how I laugh when I think of my vague, indefinite riches. No run on my bank can drain it. For my wealth is not possessions. My wealth is enjoyment of being. Let's just sit for a minute before we leave. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.